0: This morning, we continue in our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as we've been saying throughout the series, especially as we've turned the corner into chapter four, Paul is continuing to lay out um, the implications of our identity. He started out chapters one through three saying, This is who you are, this is who I've declared you to be. And now he's laying out these details of holy living. Act consistently with who you are. Live out your identity. We'll read the same verses we did last week, starting in the very end of chapter 4. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the life-giving wisdom of your word. Thank you that we trust that by your spirit you speak to us freshly today through these words written 2,000 years ago, that you desire us to see something of who you are and that you call us to respond with lives of worship and obedience and delight and faith. Do this work in us. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you missed last Sunday, we treated the same text from a a different angle than we'll look at this morning, and I'd encourage you anytime you uh, are out of town or you miss a Sunday because of illness to try to catch up, to keep up with a sermon series, especially when we're in the midst of a months-long series, you can always go to graceredeemer.com and find the latest sermon right on the homepage uh, for your easy access. I do want to share one thought before we move on to um, the next part of the text. With some gracious help I received from a GRC member this week, I realized that as I was talking about the sexual revolution going on in our world today, I neglected to share a pastoral word. I neglected to assure you that if you are struggling now with pornography same-sex attraction, with pre- premarital sex, with anything that falls under the category of Paul warning against porneia, the Greek word behind our phrase sexual immorality, please know that we here at GRC do not condemn you. We don't look askance at you. We, we don't uh, turn our Gaze away from you as if you are a special kind of human being. We are all sinners, and this is a hospital for sinners. And so, our greatest longing is that as you indicate a willingness to turn away and to battle and to choose what's best according to God's perfect wisdom, our greatest desire is to be able to come alongside you in that battle as fellow sinners. We don't condone sin, we don't treat it lightly. We, we realize that it, it brings death, but as fellow sinners battling for life through faith in Jesus, that's our greatest longing, to show you mercy and compassion, to point you to freedom and forgiveness in Christ who is at work making all things new, including your desires, your body, our world. Um, We start with this morning's focus with uh, our first heading, Positives and Negatives. Last week, as I read the text, I said, wouldn't it be nice to just read verses 1 and 2 and call it a day? There's love, there's the essence of good news here in verses 1 and 2, but the positive and the negative always go hand in hand. We cannot talk about verses 3 through 7 without having stand, uh, having looked at and, and, and standing upon chapters 1 through 3, and even verses 1 and 2 in the positive. They always go hand in hand. Th- think of um, the parents of an Olympic champion. We could almost tell the story for them because we've heard it so many times, the parents saying... When she was three years old, I, I couldn't believe the things she was doing in the gym. Or when he was eight, somehow this little guy was holding his own on the basketball court against high school kids who were just laughing at what this kid could do. Those are the positives. But, but that kind of gift does not turn a kid into a world champion on its own. It requires what we might call the negatives, waking up at 4.30 a.m., six days a week, driving um, all over creation to practices and meets and competitions and sacrificing normal play with other kids and lazy summers in childhood. What you see on the podium with a medal, positive, never comes without the cost, the negative. Parents, you you love your children, positive, and that's why you protect them from and say no to what can deaden their soul, what can harm their bodies, what can compromise their safety and security. That's the negative. If you didn't love them, the positive, you wouldn't be that interested in, you wouldn't have the depth of compassion that would lead you to firmly put your foot down and say no to what's not good for your child. They always go hand in hand. So, nothing in chapters 4 through 6, where we are now, stands on its own. Every call to holiness, every warning against sin rests on the positives of chapters 1 through 3. That's the foundation. That's why we spent so many months digging through verse by verse. And, and even within these warnings right here in our passage, Paul starts with the positive, emphasizing what God has done. Chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. All positive. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. That's the essence of positive flowing out of the Scriptures. The positive always provides the context for the negative. It always puts it into perspective. And here, the negative is the challenge to avoid even a hint of sexual immorality, verse 3, or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Why? Because these are not proper for God's holy people. This doesn't match who God has declared you to be if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, act consistently with who God says you are. We need both the positive and the negative because truth without love is cold-hearted and harsh, and love without truth is mere sentimentalism. You live according to one without the other And spiritual death results, not merely unhealth, spiritual death. Why do I say such strong words? Uh, Take the first one, or or, or maybe the second one first. Some of you grew up in churches where the message and the default lesson was truth without love. Uh, um, One term we could use that fits under that category is legalism. The the lesson was you need to be and do better to escape the guilt and shame of your sin. That doesn't merely lead to an unhealthy kind of spiritual context. That leads to spiritual death. There is no salvation when you yourself and your moral efforts are the means to accomplish what you most need, freedom and forgiveness. The opposite is no better love without truth. This says you can believe whatever you want as long as you're well-intentioned. God will always affirm you in your life choices as long as you don't hurt anyone. He's a permissive God. He's filled with mercy and compassion, and He lacks any holiness and justice, the God of love without truth. But that God is a God of fiction, not the God who has revealed Himself through Scripture. And that is the deadliest of all fictions. To think that there's no accountability for sin, and therefore there's no need for salvation from sin. It's denial that you and I have a terminal disease, insisting we're fine until it kills us forever. The positives and the negatives always go together. We need both in order to see and experience the the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Second thing we see here is the idea of false gods. Yes, with a little g. Listen to verses 3 and 5 together. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or of greed because of these are improper for God's holy people. Verse 5, for of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God for for some reason Paul connects sexual immorality and greed back to back he does it in verse 3 he does it in verse 5 he did it back in chapter 4 verse 19 where he said having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed Why does he put these things back to back? He also does it in Colossians, the the letter that is the most similar to Ephesians. You might call it a, a sibling letter. He writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Here's a category, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. What do they have in common that Paul repeatedly puts these ideas together? I'll point to two things simply this morning. Neither trusts God's heart, sexual immorality and purity. Neither trusts God's heart. Sexual immorality goes outside of the boundaries that seem too strict. God must not love me. He doesn't want me to have any fun, experience any pleasure, any enjoyment. It distrusts God's heart. And greed is never content with what God has provided. You've held on on me, God. You you don't provide perfectly as a heavenly father. I need more. And that leads uh, straight into the second dynamic. They're closely related. Sexual immorality and greed each demonstrates stronger desire for something than God knows is good healthy life-giving the irony is that the more you consume the more the thing you desire too strongly will consume you you want more but more is never enough this isn't just about money when we talk about greed you can be greedy for other people's attention you can be greedy for trophies of success You can be greedy for higher highs, whether that's from substance abuse or gambling or winning board games against the rest of the family. And greed has some close relatives. Envy focuses on who other people are, and covetousness focuses on what other people have. Envy can experience delight at a successful or beautiful person's failure. And covetousness is okay with another person's success and wealth as long as self has more. The unity between sexual immorality and greed isn't just the Apostle Paul. It shows shows up elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Um, Tim Keller points out that the Amish people… In Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, for example, they demonstrate a striking unity, the Amish, who are strict when it comes to sexual purity and are strict when it comes to worldly things, we might say, are are careful about greed and consumerism. And part of the reason we think they're odd is because there's usually a divide between personal morality and social morality. The left, politically speaking, wants strictness over how money is spent, concerned about income inequality and welfare systems. But the left wants freedom over sexuality. Why? Because this is my body and I will choose how I'm going to use my body as long as I'm not hurting anyone else. No one can tell me what to do with my body. No one can tell me that my desires are inordinate, out of proportion to God's design. On the other hand, the right wants strictness over sexuality but freedom over money because I earned it and no one, especially the federal government, can tell me what to do with it and take it from me and give it to somebody else. By the way, if I'm pushing any buttons this morning, hopefully it's equal opportunity criticism. When you read the Old Testament prophets, they are equally concerned about personal holiness being ignored. We can put sexual immorality under that category and they're also at the same time sometimes in the same sentence concerned about injustices committed against the vulnerable especially the impact of materialism and greed on those who are poor you know when the sermons about sexual immorality there's a predictable sort of unease in the congregation maybe guilty consciences are the result or are, are, are the cause Maybe there's worry about what kids will think. Maybe there are secrets in the closet. But when the sermon's about greed, there's uh, sometimes chuckling. There are, are smiles and nodding heads that understand, yeah, I have a weakness too for that, that brand of handbag, that designer label, or those tech toys. Yeah, I know what that's like. The response tends to be, You might admit over a cup of coffee that uh, your weakness led to a splurge when you bought your car or your dress or upgraded your entire entertainment system, your home theater. But you'd never admit in the fellowship hall over a cup of coffee and a donut your sexual immorality. At least it'd be far less likely what do people say in response to your splurge your weakness no 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 good for you. you 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 work hard you deserve that you know live a little bit absolutely i'm i'm happy for you that sounds strikingly similar to the parable jesus told in luke chapter 12 about the rich guy who had so much he told himself take life easy eat drink and be merry and jesus calls him a fool Says that he will die that very night and says, This is how it will be with whomever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. We treat greed a lot more lightly than we treat sexual immorality. Not so with Paul. Both are deadly. And actually, only greed gets called idolatry in Colossians 3.5 and here in Ephesians 5.5, 5, the two passages I read back to back. Greed gets called idolatry. It's false worship. It's putting in God's place good things that we have made ultimate, that we've treated as far too important. These are idols, Functional saviors, things, people, experiences that you believe will rescue you from meaninglessness, that will fill your emptiness, that will address your loneliness or your insignificance. Sexual immorality and, and greed are not uh, prude Christian values that an ancient text are pushing on you. This is about which God you will serve, what your life will be oriented around and if it will lead you to life and life everlasting or death. Last thought, the antidote. We need it. I want to turn to the Apostle James um, because several things that James says in chapter 4 illustrate what we're talking about. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Powerful passage. A few things I just want to highlight. You desire but do not have, so you kill. Not necessarily homicide or murder, but to use the words of Ephesians chapter 4, things we read a few weeks ago. Bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, tearing down other people because they're not cooperating in you getting what you want. And notice James also says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You're looking in the wrong place. You're looking around. Romans chapter 1, Paul would say, to created things rather than up to the Creator. And when you make that choice, looking around at created things rather than looking to the Creator to satisfy your needs, that is the essence of idolatry. That's false worship. This is most important, and therefore I'm going to look around here in the created world for my deepest satisfaction and that puts these things or these people in the place that God alone is to sir, uh, is to fill in your life. And then one more thing to notice in verse four, James puts it bluntly, as if he wasn't already. You adulterous people, Ew. James, come on, um, don't exaggerate. But this is his point. You're either faithful to God, enjoying intimacy with Him in committed relationship, we talked about that last week, or you're unfaithful. There's no in-between. You, you don't kind of cheat on a spouse because you only did it once or to, twice or three times, but you're, you're really faithful. No, no, no. You're, you either keep those marriage vows in faithfulness or you break them and you are an adulterer. There's no middle ground. You're either friends with the world, James says, or friends with God. You either look to others, to worldly success, to pleasures and wealth, or you trust in and receive the real thing by looking to God in faith. This is why our checkbooks and our credit card statements are as accurate of a reflection of our worship, what we value most, what we treat as highest treasure as anything else in our lives. So how do you fight greed as idolatry? In verse 4, here in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul points to something simple, giving thanks. The opposite, the rest of verse 4 is obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. These are outward signs of a heart in the grip of immorality and greed. That's what comes out of us when we are falsely worshiping. The gospel prescription to that disease of the heart is this. Starve sin by feeding praise. That's the gospel prescription, starve sin by feeding praise. That's how Paul can very, very simply say, don't do all of this filth, but give thanks. It seems almost too simple. It it, it seems simplistic. It seems like there's got to be more. There's got to be something more dramatic, something more transformative, something more sacrificial. But Paul simply says here, Give thanks. Starve sin by feeding praise. Obviously, he's talking about giving thanks to God, looking heavenward, looking to the Creator rather than created things. There's this either or at the heart of starving sin by feeding praise. Rhetorical questions. What has the false god of sexual immorality done for you? Maybe it has brought showers of delight, but then a deluge of guilt and shame. What has the false god of greed done for you? Whether you have much or have little, it has probably brought anxiety and dissatisfaction in the chase for more. Maybe with a cherry on top, the fear that you will lose what you've already gained. What has the true and holy and loving and compassionate God done for you? Paul's already told us. He's forgiven you in Christ, chapter 4, verse 32. He has called you dearly loved children, chapter 5, verse 1, and adopted you into His very family. He has loved you and sacrificed His own life for you, chapter 5, verse 2. And He declares you to be His holy people, chapter 5, verse 3. So which God is worthy of your whole life? Of your purity and obedience? Of your affections and your delight? Thanking God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, returns worship to the one who alone deserves it and starves every idol of your attention and your affections. Thanking God returns glory and praise to the one who alone deserves it and starves every other competing so-called God, every idol of your heart of affection and attention. Folks, what do you want more than anything in life? Whatever it is, Jesus would say, I want that. I ask you to lay it down at my feet. And he doesn't ask that because he's holding out on you. He doesn't ask that because he doesn't want you to have what will satisfy you. He wants you to take what you most want in life and lay it down at His feet so He can destroy it because He has created your heart to be most fulfilled. He knows you and He loves you with a perfect love too much to allow whatever you most want in life to consume you and destroy you. Jesus won't blow it up and walk away. He will destroy it and say, I am your treasure. I am your fulfillment. I am your deepest satisfaction. I am your richest love. I am the one you were always created to live forever with and be most satisfied. GRC, throw away our false gods. Embrace the only one who is your heart's desire. Jesus is his name. Let's pray. Lord God, We want, and we want, and we're never satisfied. Will we learn that we want the wrong things? Will you teach us that we look to created things rather than to you, the creator? And that is not just a mistake. That's a deadly mistake. Rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from our self-deception. Rescue us from lies and fakes that we might see Jesus as the only real treasure and embrace him and treat him as our only treasure. We praise you. We worship you. We value you above all else, Jesus. Amen.